turn with me to John chapter 5. We'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll read John chapter 5, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 47. If you're visiting with us, we are thankful you are here. We are working our way through John's Gospel, passage by passage, verse by verse. And just as a reminder, this evening we'll have evening worship at 6 o'clock here at Christ Culture Center, we'll be in the book of Revelation. So here now carefully, the reading of God's Word as we begin at John 5, verse 31. Our Lord says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you would shed light upon your holy word, that your spirit would be our teacher, our convictor, our comforter. Even this hour, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So remember where we are in John's gospel in chapter 5. Last week we saw that Jesus himself had been put in the dock, as the Brits say, and Jesus is on trial. It's not a formal trial yet, but the Jews, as John calls them, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they've already been persecuting our Lord Jesus Christ. They're plotting how to kill him, verse 18 already says. And so now Jesus, knowing what is in man, he has this conversation with them. And really, he has given his own defense. He has answered his critics. And you might be wondering, if you look at verse 31, what he means. He, he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Jesus is not saying he's a liar. He's saying according to the law of God and according to their legal tradition, that it would be necessary for someone else to bear witness of what he is saying. In the Old Testament, for instance, in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, God's law says one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin he commits, 
by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so there must be two or three witnesses to agree with the accused that the accused is, in fact, innocent or to condemn the accused. And so we find that in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, if there's an accusation brought against an elder, let that word be established by two or three witnesses. Jesus says that himself later in Matthew 18 and verse 16 concerning church discipline. And so if you notice throughout the text, there's that word witness. And that word means to testify. And it's there in verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He uses it four times, at least there in that verse. Verse 31, 34, verse 36, verse 37, he says, he has testified of me that is the Father. And so you see what Jesus is doing. He's answered his critics already. He has made the claim that if you do not receive him, Jesus, you do not receive the Father who sent him. In other words, to reject Jesus Christ is to reject the living and true God. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And that's what he has said. So now he brings to the stand not two witnesses, not three witnesses, but four, as I count them. The fourfold witness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus' defense, his apologetic as to the fact that he is the son of the living God. His claim to deity, making himself equal with God, as it says there in verse 18 of John chapter 5. And so as we do that this morning, maybe you've wondered, okay, so people tell us that Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He is the Messiah. How do I know? Well, here you go. This fourfold witness of Jesus. And so we have an apologetic, a defense of the Christian faith as far as the deity of Jesus is concerned. So who comes to the stand first? We'll look at what he mentions there at verse 33. That's John the Baptist. We have the witness of John the Baptist in verses 33 through 35. Look at verse 33. He says, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. And recall that in John chapter 1, we saw that there's the arrival of John, the one crying in the wilderness, the one about whom Malachi 3 prophesied, who would come as a light in the dark, the voice in the wilderness. And so in John 1, 23, here comes John the Baptist. He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, the Lord himself. And so he points to Jesus in John 1, 29. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God himself has sent this Lamb to die and take away the sins of the world. He bore witness to Jesus Christ, the one who is the very truth. And so back in John 5, Jesus says in verse 34 concerning the witness of John the Baptist. He says, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, Jesus does not have to. He doesn't need to rest his witness on these men, but he is putting these things before them for their sake, that they may be saved. That's why he is doing this, that they might be saved. And so we see here the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus, his patience in dealing with unbelieving, hostile religious leaders in his day. 
This tells us a little bit about our evangelistic approach. We should be evangelists uh, in that sense, telling others about the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And there will be those who hate that. They hate Jesus. No, no servant is greater than his master. Jesus says that they persecuted me. They'll persecute you as well. Let us not forget that. But how do we respond to them? With mercy, with patience, with grace. Giving them every way to see, to reason that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord and Savior of the world, as Scripture puts it. And also, uh, we see here, I think, a forecast of Jesus' mercy even on the cross. Because as He's on the cross, He will say, forgive them for they know not what they do. But this is serious, this denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and His claim to deity. And so in verse 35, he says about John, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So John the Baptist, he was very popular in his day. He became a very popular preacher. Thousands were flocking to him in the wilderness. And even the Jews themselves sent representatives to him. And they asked about it. And so as they did that, Jesus notes here, for a time they rejoiced in the ministry of John. I mean, if we read in Mark 6, it'll say in verse 20 that even Herod, for a time, heard and listened to John. But these men, they had spiritual ADD. They saw this light. They thought it was great for a moment. But as soon as John said the hard things, you brood of vipers who warned you from the wrath to come, they didn't like that. He talked about the hard things, human sin are falling short of God's glory. And so eventually, John was beheaded. And so Jesus notes this, but the point is that while they had received John's ministry, their joy at John's ministry was transformed into a hatred for the Son of God Himself. Of course, it was John's ministry to point to Jesus as the Son of God. So as Jesus points them to the ministry of John, the one sent by God himself, that voice in the wilderness, they still haven't believed in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second witness in our passage that's found there beginning at verse 36. Jesus says there, but I have a greater witness than John's. And by the way, Jesus begins to emphasize himself. I myself have a greater witness than John's. He's doing this in the Greek and He's pointing to his own witness. What is this greater witness that Jesus has? Well, it says in verse 36, the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, they bear witness of me, he says. These works of Jesus prove his claim is true. They prove his deity. And remember when he called the Father, my Father, and when he claimed to have sonship of that Father, The Jews knew what he meant in verse 18. They understood him to make himself equal with God. And so these works prove Jesus' deity. What works is he talking about? Well, remember in John 2, he's already turned water into wine, the best wine. He performed miracles at the Passover. He healed the man at the pool at Bethesda earlier in in this chapter. And so you need to understand that the miracles of Scripture, they verify that the one speaking on behalf of God is actually doing that. 
Sometimes the prophets would perform miracles. Well, here Jesus Himself performs miracles. They bring verification that His message is true. They're badges. Remember we say that they're like badges that an officer will flash to indicate he is sent by another. It's kind of like this past week I went to make a deposit at the bank through the drive-thru. And like never before, I was not only, well, I did provide my driver's license. There's my badge. It shows that I'm who I say I am. But also I was asked to verify the account. I was asked to give the name, the other name that is on my account. I gave that name. Then I was asked to give that person's birthday. And I thought to myself, why is this going on? And I thought later, it's probably because earlier in the year, my wife was the victim of identity theft. So they wanted to verify that I was who I said I was, even though I was trying to put money in the bank, not take it out. That kind of irked me. But the point is, they needed to verify that I was Kevin Metcalf. And so that was the verification That they required. Well, so it is with Jesus. His works provide that verification that he is who he would say that he is. And so we find in John 3, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, the teacher of Israel. And in John 3, 2, it says this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus and said to them, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. After Jesus had died and resurrected and then ascended into heaven at the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching to thousands of Jews and some of whom had put Jesus to death at the hand of the Romans. And he he turns to them and he preaches to them. And in Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. And so is there any wonder at the end of this gospel in John 21, verse 25, John says, look, um, Jesus did so many works, so many miracles that if anyone were to record them, I suppose he says that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so we have the works of Jesus as the second witness. We have the witness of John, the works of Jesus himself, and then third, the witness of the Father. God the Father. You may have caught this in verse 32. In verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he, it's a proper noun, it's capitalized, which he witnesses of me, another proper noun, Jesus, is true. And so who is the he? Well, a little later we find out it's God the Father. If you look at verse 36, it says there, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me. You see, even those those works of Jesus were his, they were also given to him to be done by the Father. The Father working and the Son working, of course, we'll find out later, the Spirit even working in and through Jesus himself, the God-man. And so in verse 36, the Father gives these works to Jesus as well. It's the Father through the Son. Now, if you read the Gospels, you'll find as well that there were at least three times that we know of that God the Father gave an audible concerning who Jesus is. And uh, at his baptism in Matthew 3.17... The Lord God, God the Father, said about Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At 
a time of prayer in John 12, 28. Jesus prayed to the Father, glorify your name. Then it says a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And of course, that is transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5. While Jesus was speaking, the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The Father attests to the deity and sonship of Jesus Christ, even as the prophet of God, the prophet of prophets and commands men to hear Him, to listen to Him, to obey Him. But these Jews would not. And they were not at this time. In verse 37, it says there, And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. Jesus says to these leaders, You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. What is He talking about? In the Old Testament, their fathers, Moses, He heard the very Word of God. In Exodus 33, 1, Jacob saw the form of God in Genesis 32. What is he saying? Well, they are not hearing God's word. They are not seeing God's form. It could be, as some have noted, that maybe they are saying, or Jesus is saying to them, since they abandoned the ministry of John the Baptist, they missed the opportunity to hear God the Father speak from heaven. And to see God's form as a dove, like a dove, descend upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is, they do not have ears to hear the Word of God. They do not have eyes to see the Word of God. Even though they were looking at and hearing the form and Word of God Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. As Colossians says, He is the express image of God. Jesus is there before them. They will not listen to Him. They refuse to see Him for who He is. And so in verse 38, He says, They do not have the Word of God abiding or living in them, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. Jesus knows they do not have the Word of God abiding in them because they do not believe Jesus. Jesus, the one whom the Father has sent. Remember, this goes back to verse 20. If you don't receive Jesus, you don't receive the Father. Here's the issue. They had the Word of God. They had the Word of God among them, but not in them. But they had their phylacteries. And in the Old Testament, God mentioned this. He commanded in Deuteronomy 6, 8, that they were to tie or bind the commandments as symbols on their hands, to bind them, it says, on their foreheads. There were these little boxes, and they had the scrolls, the law of God inside of them, and they were to pull them out. And it was a reminder, you know, it's kind of like today, we might put Bible verses here and there to remind us. I want to put one near my TV, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Right? And the, the bathroom mirror, things like that. But in Deuteronomy 11, verse 18, it says, God says this, it says, fix them or fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. In other words, the word was to get inside. It was to dwell inside the children of the living God. 
But this was not the case for them. The word of God was among them. And Jesus is going to go a step further here in a minute. But for now, just see it for what it is. It's hypocrisy. It's externalism. Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes scathingly the scribes and Pharisees, those who for a living studied the law, the word of God. And in Matthew 23, verse 5, he says, All their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They latch on to the things that make them look good and they enlarge them so men can see them, so they can get the praise of men, not from God. Is it any different today when we talk about this issue? Externalism, the word of God being among us, not in us. The Guinness Book of World Records notes that the best-selling book of all time is the Christian Bible. Today we have the Bible available online for free. You probably have at least one copy on your phone. And uh, it's been popular to see dashboards on, or not dashboards on Bibles, Bibles on dashboards flapping in the wind. And we strategically place them in our homes so that when people come over, they see our Bibles. We have the Ten Commandments on our walls. But is it in us? It is among us, but is it in us? Is it like the psalmist in Psalm 119 and 11, hidden in our hearts? That's the question. And so here, there's the witness of John. There is the witness of Jesus' own works. And then the witness of God the Father. There is the last witness here. That's in verse 39 and following. That is the witness of Holy Scripture. The witness of the Scripture itself. At this time, it would have been the Old Testament. If you look at verse uh, 39, he says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. You know, scribes, Pharisees, they studied the Word of God. They copied the Word of God manually. They were the so-called experts of the law. And Jesus says, you search the Scriptures. Why do they do so? He says, for in them you think you have eternal life. They actually believed That by searching the scriptures meticulously, tediously, they would obtain God's favor from heaven and thus have eternal life. Remember why John has written this gospel, by the way? It says at the end, these things I write to you that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and believing you may have what? Eternal life in his name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that one has eternal life. Belief in Jesus Christ that one obtains eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Not in anything we do. Not in studying the Scriptures even. Studying is a commendable thing, as we've already seen. But, he says this was a thing of merit. This was something to put on their resume before Almighty God. And Jesus rebukes them for it. They missed the whole point of the Old Testament. By the way, the Old Testament, it was divided in three sections. If you get a Hebrew Bible today, it still will 
often have these three sections, the law, the Torah, the writings, history, the Psalms, Proverbs, poetry, and then the prophets. And probably he's talking to all of it. In a moment, he'll address the Torah, Moses. But for now, just think they had the Old Testament. What does Jesus say? Before we do that, let me just say this about this phrase in verse uh, 39. In them you think you have eternal life. Some note that this was a phrase of a guy named Hillel. Hillel was um, a Jewish rabbi. He was before the time of Jesus. He was instrumental in the giving of the Mishnah and um, the Talmud. And those recorded the oral traditions of the teachers in Israel. They passed them down. They added to the word of God. And so this was a phrase or related to a phrase that this Hillel said. Well, what did he say? He said this. Speaking of studying scripture, if he has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. They were meticulous about how they copied the word. I won't go into all of that. It is really ridiculous. And so Jesus says, in them you think you have eternal life. But they had missed the whole point of Scripture. By the way, let me ask you the question. What is the point of Scripture? Why has God given us the Bible? Uh, some will say for the glory of God. And that is true. But I think ultimately it is the book of redemption. To show us the way of salvation. Think about it. In Genesis 1, we have the account of creation. In Genesis 2, the covenant of life. Genesis 3, the fall of mankind into sin. And in Genesis 3, we have the curse, death, to come and fall upon humanity. And at that time, though, God promises in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head, who will come and overturn this curse. And so from Genesis 3.16, it's forward, it's talking about the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come. The Old Testament is paving the way, pointing to Jesus who will come. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we have the types of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses himself is a type of Jesus who leads us out of the house of bondage into the promised land. We have uh, the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, the one who is greater than Moses. There's water from the rock in the wilderness, the manna that falls down from heaven, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that if you look to that, you will be saved, John chapter 3 says. There's the pillar of fire, God's presence with his people. There's the tabernacle, again, God's presence, the meeting place of God's people. The temple itself, all of the sacrifices point to Jesus, the Lamb, not of men, but the Lamb who comes down from God, who will actually take away the sins of the world. And then we have all of those prophecies in the Bible, coming from the prophets, talking again, even in, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, Genesis 12, 15 and 17, the seed of Abraham, singular. Galatians 3 says that seed is Christ, Jesus. He is Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. The one to be born of the virgin, God with us. And of course, in Isaiah Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant. It is plain as day that that is referring to Jesus Christ. And so scripture is about that. It's, you know, it lays down principles for life, the commandments of God, no doubt. But even the commandments point us to Jesus, Galatians 3 says. 
It's our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And so after his resurrection, before his ascension, we're told in Luke 24, 27, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. What does he do? It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I want to attend that Bible study in heaven. I want to see how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. We have many good Christian men today attempting it, doing a good job, no doubt. But I want to hear Jesus' final authority on that. In Romans 1-2, Paul's speaking of the gospel which God promised beforehand. He says it was through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures that he promised the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what's going on? Jesus is, he's turning the tables. Now they're on trial. They may not know it yet. Perhaps they do. Um, But it's his system against theirs. When it comes to salvation, redemption, finding God in heaven. It's the system of Christ, grace, versus their system, the system of works. It's the system of human merit, their system, versus the system of mercy, the mercy of God, His system. And so in verse 40, we have a warning to those who would approach God seeking salvation through one's own accomplishments. He says, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If you want life, if you want abundant life, if you want eternal life, if you want the forgiveness of sins, God Himself, Christ Himself forever, to whom must you go? Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's what He says. What prevents men from going to Jesus Christ when they hear the Gospel? What prevented these men? Their pride. It was their pride. So 2 Corinthians 3.14 says the same veil in Paul's day. The same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament upon the unbelieving Jews because the veil is taken away in Christ. Matthew Henry said it is possible for men to be very studious in the letter of Scripture and yet to be strangers in the power and influence of it. My friend, uh, my brothers and sisters, may not, that not be true of you or of me. And so he says they didn't love God. In verses 41 through 43, they, they were ignorant of Scripture. They didn't love God. After all, if they loved God, they would love the Word of God. They would love Scripture. They would love the Christ of Scripture. In verse 41... He says he's not there to receive their praise, but to declare the way of salvation. In verse 42, he says, uh, I know you, I know it's in your hearts. You do not have the love of God in you. And I think he means the love for God. You do not love God. That's not in your hearts. And so in verse 43, uh, there is that original argument. He's already said to them, I've come in my father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, him you will receive. Um, They rejected Jesus, therefore they reject the Father. But if another comes in his own name, they'll receive him. That's really a prophecy because this happened even before before 70 AD. 
There were dozens who came in their own name. Some saying they were the Christ, but they came in their own name. They weren't sent by God. And the Jews fell for it. The unbelieving Jews fell for that false prophet, those false prophets. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5 even. Acts 5, 36 and 37. Well, in verse 44, he talks about their own preoccupation with the praise of men. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? What was their society? What was their religion? It was the Mutual Admiration Society. They loved to give each other pats on the back. They loved the praise of men. Jesus, again, talked about how they enlarged the phylacteries. Jesus talks about how when they give the Pharisees, they blow their trumpets in the streets so that all men may look upon them and see them giving. They want the praise and approval of men. That is one of their little false gods. But remember what Jesus says, especially in our day. In Luke chapter 6, and verse 26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Let us beware lest we seek the approval and praise of men and not of God alone. It takes humility, it takes courage, yes, boldness given to us by the Spirit. But pride will go the other way, as we see here in our passage. Now we come to this section of verses 48 or 45 through 47. He actually tells them that Moses is not their savior, but their accuser. And verse 45, it really goes like this. Stop thinking. That I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. What is Moses? It's the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. They trusted in Moses in order to get salvation, but they refused to understand all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Psalm 14 says it clearly. Romans 3 again. Clearly. The very one in whom they trusted was the one that condemned them. And he says in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. You say, but Kevin, if I go and read Leviticus, read about all these genealogies in the Old Testament, the priesthood, the things about the temple, all of these sacrifices, that's talking about Jesus? Yes. In some way, what is going on is projecting the reader to anticipate the coming and arrival of the one that those things typify. There's the type, and as we say, the anti-type. The anti-type is Jesus. And so in other words, Jesus is telling them, He's saying, if you believed Moses, you would have believed in Me. So let us not make that mistake when it comes to Bible study and reading the Word of God. 
Now, we have to be careful with our interpretation of Scripture, not to go crazy and do what some of the so-called church fathers have done in church history, making fanciful interpretations of the Bible and so forth. But we need to understand, as we read the Old Testament, you need to be thinking, okay, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I hope He comes. Oh, there He is. There's John. Oh, there's Jesus. Thankfully, finally. Oh, He goes to the cross. Thank You, Lord. He rose from the dead. Okay, my sins are paid in full. Now, how do I live? You see, we have to get to that as well. But the Gospel comes before that. So it's not for a lack of evidence that these men refuse to follow Jesus, but it is a cold, dead, unbelieving heart. Verse 44, he says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another? It's your pride that's keeping you. If this is your state, how in the world are you going to believe in me? Because I'm bringing grace. And you do not seek, he says, the honor that comes from the only God. What honor are they seeking? Self-honor. It's the God of self. Self-love, self-esteem, by the way. And so he says in verse 47, but if you do not believe his, Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus points to the witness of John. He points to his own works. He points to the witness of the Father himself. And then he points to the entire Old Testament. How do we know that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Son of the living God, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us right here. And in fact, today we have one more witness. It is the resurrection of Jesus Himself from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says at least 5,000 were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is there a lack of evidence for the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God, to be divine, to be the Savior of the world only, only Him? There's no lack of evidence. And so if men write dissertations against the Christian faith, if an apostate like Bart Ehrman teaches at the University of North Carolina and spends his life trying to sow the seeds of doubt in his students, or if you make excuses as to why you can't believe Jesus is the living God, the Savior of the world, it's not for a lack of evidence. And it's not Jesus who stands accused. It is you who disbelieve. And by the way, were it not for the grace of God, Paul says, there go I. We too, like these Pharisees, had cold, obstinate, dead hearts. It was by the Spirit that we've been made alive. For you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, unless you are born again. Unless I end there... Consider what Jesus says. They were not willing to come to Him that they may have life. They didn't believe, therefore they didn't have life. So what must you do to be saved? You go to Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ that you might have life and have life eternal. Amen? Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, you've given us gracefully, patiently, mercifully great detail to show us that Jesus is your Son, that He is the second member of the Trinity, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray that you would help us to cherish that, to believe it, to cherish your Word, to keep your Word in our hearts, that we may follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.